Hey, mate, 40 here. So remember during the long, dark years of COVID, like we learned that you're absolutely a terrible person if you're not doing absolutely everything you can to slow the spread, all right? So if you're not wearing a mask, if you're not getting vaccinated, if uh, you're not socially distancing, if you're not washing your hands, if you're not doing absolutely everything you can to reduce the transmission of this virus, you're a bad person because the more this virus is transmitted, the more chances are that this virus will mutate. And you, you don't want this virus mutating, all right? We need to band together, restrict our activities so people get arrested for paddleboarding. All right, out in the ocean where they're far away from other people. Like you, you're expected to, you know, socially distance, uh, not leave your homes unless it's for a dire emergency to stay away from work, stay away from going to church, synagogue, all these restrictions to try to slow the spread. But you don't see any of the people who are making that case, making the case that uh, gay men should restrict themselves from going to orgies to reduce the spread of monkeypox. Right, You had all these restrictions on ordinary Americans, but not when it comes to a protected group. Right, And also you didn't see this with regard to Black Lives Matter. Right, Black Lives Matter didn't need to restrict their social activism. That was an important and healthy expression. So people gathering together, forsaking social distancing to be activists on behalf of Black Lives Matter, that was healthy and good. But for everyone else, going to church, getting together with friends, that was evil. All right. So there are protected groups that don't have to restrict their activities, even if they multiply the spreading of, of dangerous viruses. And then there are ordinary Americans who are protected and they're bad people if they don't do everything they can to slow the spread. All right, let's check in with Tucker Carlson. Welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, day after day, they bombard you from every news source telling you that January 6th was the worst insurrection since Mussolini's march on Rome. Obviously, they're lying. You know that. They know that. Why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it in the hope that if they scream the lies loud enough for long enough, you will forget what actually happened. You won't remember, for example, that in January of 2017, shortly after Trump won, a fairly large group of elected Democrats tried to overturn what was a free and fair election. They were insurrectionists. The group included Congressman Jamie Raskin, Pramila Jaipal, Barbara Lee, Sheila Jackson Lee, Maxine Waters, Jim McGovern, others. And then, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, Nancy Pelosi promoted the dangerous conspiracy theory that the election had been, quote, hijacked by a hostile foreign government, Russia. Then, on January 13th, 2017, because we kept track, Democratic Party holy man John Lewis declared that Donald Trump was not the legitimate president. Talk about breaking our norms. Then, not surprisingly, on Inauguration Day, the Democratic Party's militia descended on Washington. Hundreds of rioters committed vandalism, overturned cars, at one point lit a limousine on fire. Most of the violence was concentrated in Franklin Square. That's just down the street from the Capitol. Six police officers were seriously injured by the rioters. They threw bricks and trash cans. In all, 200 of Nancy Pelosi's forces were arrested. It took 5,000 National Guardsmen to quell the violence. That would be the first of many riots the Democratic Party encouraged during the Trump administration. Now, if you're wondering if any of that actually happened, you're seeing it on your screen, and you may be wondering, since no one's mentioned it since it happened, you can look it up, because it's all on video. In retrospect, what's interesting, though, is how the Justice Department responded to all this violence. 
No one at DOJ opened a criminal investigation into Nancy Pelosi or no way into John Lewis for sparking the riots. And that was never even under consideration because at the time this was America. Political speech is not a crime in America. It has never been a crime in America. Even if extremists use your words to justify their violence, you cannot be arrested for their deeds because we have a First Amendment. Political speech is sacrosanct, period. The Supreme Court has ruled on this many times. It's at the very heart of our system. It is why this is a free country. But in the single most radical move, perhaps, of the entire Biden administration, the Attorney General Merrick Garland has decided to change this. The Washington Post is reporting that the Justice Department is investigating former President Donald Trump as part of a criminal probe into January 6th. Now, that may confuse you since Trump did not commit any act of violence on January 6th. In fact, he publicly urged his voters to, quote, stay peaceful. When they entered the Capitol building, he told them to go home. That's all on public record. But according to Merrick Garland, Donald Trump is still liable for every single one of his supporters' crimes that day. Donald Trump's speech is violence. That's the new rule. Your speech is violence. But here's the thing. That rule applies only to you, to opponents of the Democratic Party. Supporters of the Democratic Party can still say whatever they want. So what we have here is not just infuriating or hypocritical. It's worse than that. It's the definition of selective justice. And there's nothing scarier than selective justice, which is no justice at all. And yet suddenly you see evidence of it everywhere. Carrying a legal gun in the Bronx and the chances are you will not go to jail because you voted for Joe Biden. Keep a deer rifle in your closet in Florida and Joe Biden will blame you for school shootings. That's how it works. And again, you see it everywhere. At the same moment, DOJ is investigating a former president for saying things Joe Biden didn't like. That same DOJ is apparently hiding evidence of criminal activity by Joe Biden's son, Hunter. The latest evidence comes from Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Grassley's office has received whistleblower complaints from within the FBI. Those complaints reveal efforts to, quote, improperly discredit negative Hunter Biden information as disinformation, thereby causing, quote, investigative activity to cease. So call it Russian disinformation and the investigation into whatever Hunter Biden did. In the words of Chuck Grassley, quote, the allegations provided to my office appear to indicate that there was a scheme in place among certain FBI officials to undermine derogatory information connected to Hunter Biden by falsely suggesting it was disinformation. In other words, not only did they not consider charging the president's son, they actively lied to the public about the nature of his crimes. And to some extent, we saw this play out in public. 50 former intelligence officials at the highest level, Jim Clapper, Mike Hayden, John Brennan, Michael Morrell, Andy Lightman, all claimed in public in a publicly circulated letter that Hunter Biden's laptop was, quote, Russian disinformation. It wasn't. It was entirely real. They knew it was real. Not one of them has apologized. Not one of the 50 has apologized for lying on the eve of a presidential election about facts that might have influenced voters to vote differently from the way they voted. They interfered. Those 50 Intel officials interfered in our democracy. They've never been held accountable. They've never even acknowledged what they did. That was happening in public. But in private, According to Chuck Grassley's office, one senior FBI official ordered a Hunter Biden probe closed, quote, without providing a valid reason as required by FBI guidelines. Just shut it down. It's the president's son. We want this guy to win. Don't hassle his boy. 
In another case, officials improperly hid damaging information about Hunter Biden in a subfolder that almost nobody at the FBI could find. Ultimately, the FBI appears to have abandoned the case. Most of the media has ignored it from the first day or lied about it. But the New York Post has stayed on this story, and so has this network, Fox. That's not because we're interested in Hunter Biden's personal life, which was unusually creepy. It's because the documents on his laptop contain evidence that the president of the United States, Joe Biden, sold political influence to our number one geopolitical rival, a country that considers us its main enemy, and that would be China. Joe Biden used his public office to enrich his family. That is a crime. It's a crime by statute, and it's certainly a moral crime. Now, publicly, Joe Biden has denied this repeatedly. He said he knew nothing about what his son was doing overseas. Here's Biden in 2019. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. That was a lie. Provably so. That was a flat out lie. You know that because we played you the voicemail of Joe Biden telling Hunter that he's, quote, in the clear after a New York Times piece on his business dealings with China. Hunter Biden accompanied his father, the sitting vice president of the United States, on trips to China and met with communist officials. So that's a lie. We've shown you the picture of Joe Biden golfing with Hunter Biden's business partners. Most damning is that we have firsthand testimony from one of those partners. His name is Tony Bobolinsky. We sat with him for an hour in October of 2020. He told us that Joe Biden stood to gain tens of millions of dollars from a business deal with the Chinese energy company, CEFC. The emails on the laptop, Bobolinsky said, identified Joe Biden as, quote, the big guy. You've seen a number of journalists, reporters covering the story, including some who should know better, declare triumphantly that no document you've released connects the former vice president to this deal. How do you react to that? What's your answer to it? I want to simplify this for the American people as much as I can. On May 13th, that email was sent from James Gillier to me. I didn't generate that email. James Gilliard generated that email. And in that email, James Gilliard goes through intimate detail of what each individual's requests were from a compensation perspective and how the equity in the enterprise would be divvied up. Very important, May 13th, that email was generated by somebody else to me. In that email, there's a statement where they go through the equity, Jim Biden's referenced as you know, 10% doesn't say Biden, it says Jim. And then it has 10% for the big guy held by H. I 1,000% sit here and know that the big guy is referencing Joe Biden. Um, big guy the, held, it's, that's crystal clear to me because I lived it. I met with the former vice president in person multiple times. And I had been meeting and talking with Hunter Biden and, and uh, Jim Biden and Rob Walker and James Gillier. It's kind of amazing looking at that tape more than a year and a half later, now that Joe Biden is president. That interview took place before the 2020 presidential election. In a normal country with a free press, every claim that Tony Bobulinski made would have been run down by big news organizations. It wouldn't have been up to Fox News and the New York Post to run it down. But they ignored it and they lied about it. Now, one of the names Bobolinsky mentioned, you just heard it, was James Gillier. He is a business partner of the Biden family. 
Bobulinski told us in very specific terms that he and Gillier were setting up deals with the Chinese energy company while Joe Biden was the sitting vice president. Christmas Eve 2015, he sent you the following text, which explained the deal with China that he wanted you to become part of. And I just want to read the first sentence of this. There will be a deal between one of the most prominent families from the U.S. and them constructed by me. Yes, that's correct. Tell me what he was saying. So James Gillier was referencing something that he had been working on throughout 2015 with Rob Walker and a Chinese company called CEFC. And he had uh, been traveling around the world developing that deal. And that text was just the culmination of him making me aware that the deal was moving forward. So he, he doesn't say, I want to do a deal with you and me and Hunter Biden, or even you, me, Hunter Biden and Jim Biden. He said between one of the most prominent families from the United States. He's talking about the Biden family. Yes, that's correct. If you think about it for a minute, this whole conversation is ludicrous. Hunter Biden was trading on his father's office. Why else would a Chinese energy company seek him out to do business? Hunter Biden didn't speak Chinese. He knew nothing about energy. He, in fact, never really had a real job in his life but they promised to pay him tens of millions of dollars because why? Because of his expertise in the energy business? It's insane. And yet when we aired that video, the usual liars failed to respond. Instead, they attacked Tony Bobulinski, a man who made not one dime for that interview, a man who caused himself untold trouble by giving that interview, a man who provided documentation to back up every single thing he said directly from Hunter Biden's laptop, but they were totally ignored. Now we're learning the FBI, which had the laptop when we did that interview, buried it directly, deliberately to protect the president. That's what Grassley's office has just uncovered. They did no investigation whatsoever. Tonight, Tony Bobulinski's claims have been corroborated once again. The New York Post has obtained a communication in which James Gillier, the man you just heard described, the Biden family business partner, panics over the possibility that Joe Biden's involvement in this deal might be uncovered. Miranda Devine is the reporter who broke this story. She's the author of The Laptop from Hell and a columnist for The New York Post. She joins us to explain what this story is. Miranda, thanks so much for joining us. So... Tell us where this information comes from and what it says, if you would. Well, this is a new communication that has been brought by a whistleblower to the uh, Republican congressional investigators who are really getting up ahead of steam in their uh, probe into the laptop and into the Biden family influence peddling scheme. Uh, there's at least two uh, committees that will be looking at that after the midterms, uh, provided that the Republicans, of course, uh, win a majority in Congress, which the polls show that they will. Uh, and so they're getting multiple whistleblowers coming forward with lots of very useful information. And one of those is a communication uh, between uh, James Gilliar, this sort of shadowy um, uh, British former uh, special forces operative who had links to British intelligence, to MI6. Um, he is having a conversation, a 
panicked conversation which ensued on the very day that the New York Post, we first broke um, the first story from the laptop, which was October 14, 2020, just three weeks before the presidential election. And um, so this communication has James Gilliard talking to an unnamed person about what would happen if Hunter Biden, Joe Biden and Joe Biden's campaign basically threw their partners under the bus. Uh, this was the concern that was being raised in multiple uh, phone calls and sort of messages between um, various people who were involved with Hunter Biden. And James Gilliard was very cool. Uh, when he was being asked about this possibility. And he said, look, um, I, I really don't think that they will do that, um, meaning the Bidens, because um, he, he looked at two scenarios. One, if Joe Biden lost the election, in which he, he said that he thinks that they would just leave, quote, sleeping dogs lie. And if uh, Joe Biden won the election, James Gilliard's theory was that um, they wouldn't have to worry about any investigations into, uh, you know, into the influence peddling operation because Joe Biden would be so busy doing other things. Um, I think you have the direct quote there um, from it. But uh, it's, it's just another example where James Gilliard describes Joe Biden as the big guy. And that corroborates what Tony Bobolinsky has always said, which is that when uh, on the laptop there is a reference to the big guy, that means Joe Biden. And of course, James Gillia was also the author of that email in 2017 in which the big guy was due to get 10% of a very lucrative uh, deal with the Chinese communist government. And of course, the big guy was the whole point of the business deal in the first place. I mean, Hunter Biden and Gillier brought no value to a Chinese energy company. It was only Joe Biden's influence they were after. I mean, just for a reality check, correct? Exactly right. Um, they had nothing to offer except the Biden name, which was used basically by President Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative to open doors around the world where the Chinese Communist government wanted to buy up infrastructure and basically trap countries in, in, uh, in debt. And so um, when, when Joe Biden was getting 10, you know, was allocated, supposedly the big guy, 10% of a deal, um, this is just part of uh, a lot of evidence on the laptop, which might suggest that uh, Joe Biden was actually profiting from some of these deals. Of course he was. What a total sellout of the United States. Brandon Devine, thank you for your relentless reporting on this. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tucker. So the president of Ukraine took a break from his packed schedule meeting with Hollywood celebrities to do a photo shoot for Vogue because Ukraine really needs a lot more of our tax dollars as our economy collapses. We've got the Vogue photo shoot with the world's newest George Washington next. Yeah, that that is kind of weird. So let, let's have a look here at uh, Zelensky here. All right, he's uh, posing posing with his wife at this uh, photo shoot for, for Vogue. I mean, like right in the middle of a war, taking time out to pose for a photo shoot for Vogue. Kind of unbelievable. Now, I think a lot of the criticisms about uh, Ukraine and its policies during this war are misplaced. So 
Ukraine is fighting for its survival. Emotionally, 100% of, of my emotions are on the side of Ukraine in, in this conflict. So Ukraine's fighting for its survival, so it doesn't surprise me that Ukraine would restrict democracy, would restrict freedom of speech, would absolutely crush dissent, right? The country's fighting for its life. So I don't see that as uh, surprising or shocking or a terrible thing or an indictment. And just because Ukraine's a flawed democracy and Ukraine has considerable amounts of corruption, that doesn't uh, diminish my sympathy for Ukraine. Ukraine overall is a more free, more democratic place than Russia. And I, I don't understand anyone who doesn't have sympathy for Ukraine. Now, I don't agree with arming Ukraine and getting closer and closer to World War Three with Russia and a nuclear apocalypse. All right. I think that'd be an absolute disaster. So that's where I stand. Now, heartbreaking story here in the Washington Post, all about uh, monkeypox inequities, right? It's exposing inequities in our public health system. Man, what are we going to do about this? Struggle to protect gay, bisexual men from monkeypox exposes inequities. I've never cried sitting on a toilet in my entire life. Access to testing, vaccines, and treatment is a challenge for the disadvantaged. News by Fennett Nearapil. Two gay friends in New York infected with monkeypox in July fought to get limited antiviral medication to relieve excruciating pain caused by anal rectal lesions. Sebastian Cohn, who works in healthcare philanthropy, prevailed in four days after haranguing his doctor's office and the local health department. But his friend Corey Anderson, an undocumented immigrant from Jamaica, gave up after an agonizing week, unable to obtain the drugs because official test results from the city health department were delayed. I've never cried sitting on a toilet in my entire life. I cried so many tears, I was wailing, said Anderson, a bartender without health insurance who relies on free clinics. Well, maybe maybe you shouldn't go out there and have a lot of uh, gay sex with strangers right now, all right? So normal people were browbeaten for two and a half years to restrict normal activities like going to church, going to synagogue, going to work, having Thanksgiving with their friends and family, all right? Normal people were restricted sometimes even from paddleboarding in the Santa Monica Bay, for walking more than a couple of miles from their home. There are all sorts of restrictions to slow the spread. And generally speaking, I generally side with the restrictions. But the same people who are pushing these restrictions on ordinary people will not say a word, all right? Will not breathe a syllable encouraging protected groups to restrain their, their behavior so that they stop the spread. Right, the more monkeypox spreads, the more likely it is to mutate in ways that go into the general population. So AIDS was primarily a disease among gays in the Western world, but it didn't end there. Right? Hundreds, thousands of people who are not gay and who are not intravenous drug users eventually caught and died from the disease. Right? But the disease was incubated and largely spread among the gay community. Now, monkeypox is largely incubated and spread in the, that part of the gay community that's out there participating in orgies. Why can't we say, hey, dial back on the orgies during the age of, of monkeypox? So Steve Saylor writes about this. Uh, so we've only got three people outside of Africa so far who've died from monkeypox, but 
this could spread, right? And it's overwhelmingly spread by gay men to other gay men in the course of having an orgy. Only, only one thing that pretty much everybody in Washington agrees on, and that is our borders don't matter at all, but Ukraine's borders are holy, and therefore the government of Ukraine, the authoritarian government of Ukraine, needs tens of billions of dollars from U.S. taxpayers immediately stop complaining, and by the way, indefinitely, forever. Both parties in Washington agree with this. It's the single most important priority for the country, but every poll shows that actually it's not the number one issue for Americans. The number one issue for actual Americans is inflation. So yesterday, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, was asked about the inflation that the funding of his country is causing here. And his response was this, and we're quoting, inflation is nothing. Who is thinking about inflation? These things are secondary. Really? Maybe to you, Mr. Zelensky. But to Americans, they're actually kind of meaningful because our countries are not the same. Why don't you run yours, we'll run ours. So Ukraine's leaders are really not hiding it anymore. They have total contempt for us. They just want our money. They don't care about the United States even a little bit. This is not democracies uniting in solidarity. This is a scam. Every other week, Zelensky has appeared in public. You may have noticed this with U.S. politicians on hand, snuggling with Lindsey Graham once again. It's kind of weird that he never seems worried about his own safety since this is a war zone. He's met with a ton of Hollywood celebrities. Here he is with Ben Stiller. Hello, 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 sir. Really nice to meet you. Hello, hello. Thanks for taking the time. Very, very yeah. honor for me. No, we, yeah. are, we know you, you very well. <laughs> um, it's yeah. a great honor for me, and nice to see you. Um, it's really wonderful. You're my hero. You're no, amazing. No, yes. no, no. As, as a, you quit a great acting career for this? Not so great as you. <laughs> no, but pretty great. Um, but what you've done and the way that you've... Uh, rallied the country and what you know for the world it's really inspiring yeah you've really you're a hero this week Zelensky got the Annie Leibovitz treatment at Vogue magazine he really is the Beto O'Rourke of Ukraine this is real video uploaded by Vogue on Instagram watch Pretty insulting to the thousands of Ukrainians who have died and to the U.S. taxpayer who's funding all of this. But Ukraine has gotten away with it because with the complicity of the American media, they have from day one waged a fierce information war. They lied about the ghost of Kiev. They lied about the island where the troops told the battleship to F off. They keep lying. Now, you know, they can lie all they want, but why are we still funding this? Todd Wood is the founder of CD Media. He's a former special operations pilot. He joins us tonight. Todd, thanks so much for coming on. So at a certain point, when the president of Ukraine, and again, he's allowed to worry about his country, but we're also allowed to worry about ours. And when we're funding not simply his war, but his government, and we don't even know where the money's going, and clearly a lot of it's being stolen, when he gives the finger to American taxpayers by saying your stupid worries about inflation mean nothing, how masochistic do you have to be to keep sending this guy money? Look, thanks for having me back, Tucker. Uh, it's an honor. Um, we talked previously about how corrupt Ukraine is, and, and I've met with a lot of these oligarchs. Their only allegiance is to themselves and their power and their wealth. They have no allegiance to the people of Ukraine, kind of like our, our oligarch class right now. So this is, as you said, a huge scam. Um, you know, I... 
I know that all this money we're sending over there is not getting to where it's supposed to go. This recent plane crash in Greece with a Ukrainian cargo plane uh, with the uh, eight Ukrainian crew members who all died and perished because the plane was loaded with explosives and, and weapons. Um, the, the narrative was it was coming from Serbia to Bangladesh, but I, I find that extremely hard to believe. What I think is happening is that the weapons are getting sold, and, uh, you know, this is just a big grift for either the oligarch class, the defense contractors in the U.S., or maybe Biden is sending weapons somewhere. I don't know. But th it's not—this money is not getting to where uh, we think it's going, that is for sure. I don't understand how any responsible person— could send billions in advanced weapon systems into a war zone and then make no effort to track what happens to them next. Oh, of course. I mean, this is uh, the huge, the big problem, right? I mean, this is, as I've said before on your show, a, a, a safe space for criminals to do whatever they want. They want no accountability, and, and they have either pushed too far and because they're now losing this war, and it doesn't matter how many weapons we send in, unless we send the U.S. military in there, I don't believe Ukraine can win this conflict in any sense of victory that we would see. I think there needs to be some kind of immediate uh, negotiated settlement because the Ukrainian people are suffering. Uh, but either they have pushed too far and, and now they're getting the pushback uh, from the Russian Federation, which is coming in massive waves, or they want a war with Ukraine, which is what I fear, and why we need adult leadership in the White House. Yeah, and yet everyone in Washington fell for this, just like they fell for the George Floyd myth, just like they fell for all the COVID lies. It's like dumber people yes. have never run a country. Todd Wood, I appreciate yes. your coming on tonight. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you, Tucker. So all of a sudden, our public health authorities are telling us we've got to change the name of monkeypox because monkeypox is somehow racist. Now, Obviously, you don't want to get monkeypox, but let's be honest, greatest name of any disease ever. I've got monkeypox. I mean, you don't want monkeypox, but pretty cool name. That's racist. The commissioner of New York's health department, for example, Ashwin Vazan, just said there is, quote, growing concern for the potentially stigmatizing effects that the messaging around the monkeypox virus can have on vulnerable communities. Dr. Mark Siegel joins us to assess. Dr. Siegel, thanks so much for coming on. They, they're worried about the name this is actually infecting thousands of people, but they're worried about what it's called. What does that tell us? It tells us that they're focusing on whether a virus, Tucker, is politically correct. But viruses right. know, know from that. They infect Democrats. They infect Republicans. They try to cause you to suffer. They try to spread to other people. They're not politically correct. In 1918, by not naming the virus the Chinese flu or the China flu, we ended up ignoring a century of flus that came out of Asia. And then later on, we have COVID 100 years later. And by not naming it the Wuhan virus, we did, of course, but by the world not naming it that, we lost the opportunity to really focus in on China and say, did this come from a lab? We think may maybe it did. And then Omicron came out of Africa, right? And we didn't want to call it the Africa strain. So we missed the idea that many strains might come out of Africa after that because we ignored it politically correct. We in science need not to do that. We need to look at origins exactly where they come from because they guide science. Now, monkeypox comes from 1958, a colony of monkeys. And, Tucker, it's exotic sounding. I like that. You know why? Because yeah. it scares people into taking it seriously. And by the way, speaking of not taking it seriously, speaking of disrespect to the gay and bisexual community, how about this? Not enough vaccines. Not enough treatments, not enough tests, thousands and thousands and thousands more tests we need, which we don't have. And I'm going to prove I'm right to you, Tucker. In the 1980s, 
I trained on HIV, and we showed a lot of disrespect to the gay community. There was a lot of homophobia. Well, we called it acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Doesn't sound politically incorrect to me. Sound like a whitewash, right? But it didn't stop people from mistreating gay people. And we should have learned from that. Now, nowadays, we, we're making the same mistake again. What about chickenpox, Tucker? Should we say chickenpox offends chickens? I'll tell you what we have to do. We've got to go to Shakespeare for an answer to this. Shakespeare hauled out Mercutio and said, you guys got to get along. If not, it's a plague or a pox on both your houses, Tucker. Yeah. Hard to trust these people at this point, I will say that. Dr. Siegel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank so you. So words that are descriptive or precise, of course, are horrifying to people who want to control your brain because they give you too much information about what things really are. As we said, we like monkeypox. It's a great name. But as long as they're going to change the name, we should have some role in naming it. It shouldn't be left up to Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks. So what should we call it? Democracy pox? Schlong COVID, our favorite. Tweet us your suggestions. We'll read the best ones tomorrow. If they're going to rename monkeypox, we should have a say. Well, political investing standards, known as ESG, are crushing economies around the world. They're, they're a drag on our economy. But if you live in the developing world, they may be toppling your government. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has noticed this. He has a plan to fight back against ESG. He joins us next to announce what it is. Okay, so I got to admit, I'm starting to find the Hunter Biden story is kind of boring. Like the first seven, eight, nine minutes of that Tucker Carlson monologue absolutely held my attention. Once he brought on Miranda Devine, uh, my attention just wandered. So I find it hard to sustain my attention on the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden corruption story. And another thought on something Tucker said, I don't expect Ukraine to give a damn about the United States and its inflation rates. The United States is not funding and supporting Ukraine because it loves Ukrainians. The United States funds and subsidizes Ukraine because it sees it as in America's strategic interest to weaken a big geostrategic rival, Russia. Right? We're not funding Ukraine out of the goodness of our hearts. It's naive to expect Ukrainians to, to give a damn about us. So we often pursue our geostrategic interests under the cloak of humanitarian rhetoric. But you can't confuse rhetoric with reality, all right? We're not funding Ukraine out of love. We're funding Ukraine out of cold-hearted self-interest. All right, what's going on with the monkeypox? As for monkeypox, I, I think there's a pretty good rule in life. Uh, don't attend gay orgies. Uh, when you look at the New England Journal's report of the 548 orgies that reviewed. Ned, come on, man. It's not what? about gay. How no, about not absolutely. any orgies? Go look, at, go look at the New England Journal's report that NBC News reported on, on Friday, in which of the 528 cases they reviewed, 95% were between sex between men. Yeah, I think we actually have to have a serious conversation about where this is coming from. When I'm done, Brad, you can talk. Instead of going crazy and declaring a national pandemic when 3,000 people have it right now, it's insane. I don't know, man. You don't have to be gay to get monkeypox, and uh, you don't have to be bigoted when you talk about treating something that is that easily spread, Marie. It's not bigoted. Yeah, it is. This, this is science, Kennedy. 95% yeah. of the cases from the New right, England I, Journal. You know what? I'm going to let 
Brad respond. Okay, I'm going to let Brad respond because, Brad, we had 372 doses. The United States in Denmark, where the, the smallpox, monkeypox vaccine is manufactured, they were ready to go, but uh, because this has been an issue for more men in the gay community, it seems like it has been lower on the priority list. Brad. Yeah, look, Ned is right when he says that monkeypox right now is mostly affecting gay men. The problem is that public health-wise, not going to orgies in general is a good policy to not get sexually transmitted diseases. 100%. And so we have to be really careful. We saw with the AIDS crisis, with the HIV crisis, about how certain communities or certain gay people will be stigmatized yes. over something that lots of people do. And we got to be careful about that. And that kind of, I will use the term, bigoted language that makes it seem like the only people they get this or from one group of Americans. Hey, guess what? Gay men also have friends and family members and colleagues. And this is not just transmitted through sexual activity. It's transmitted through close contact. So you don't fight diseases. I'm glad Brad brought up HIV AIDS. You don't fight diseases by caricaturing the people who get them or who get them at one point in time. Wow. All right. Monkeypox is overwhelmingly spread by gay men having sex with strangers. HIV was overwhelmingly spread by gay men having sex with strangers. So why can't we stigmatize dangerous activity? We did it all during COVID, right? You went to church during COVID, during a lockdown. You're a bad person because you were possibly spreading a, a deadly virus, right? If you went for a picnic at the park with your friends, you're caught a bad person. If you weren't masking up when you're walking down the street, right? You're a bad person. So ordinary, healthy Americans doing ordinary, healthy things get lectured and caricatured and berated, right? For possibly spreading a deadly virus while other groups who choose to participate in orgies and, and that's the primary mode of transmission for another nasty virus. You can't say one word of criticism against them, right? And it's not like, aside from monkeypox, oh, and aside from HIV, right? There aren't any diseases peculiar to the gay community. The gay community has disproportionate numbers of all sorts of nasty sexually transmitted diseases and other diseases, including uh, diseases of, of mental health, right? Uh, there are just all sorts of health problems in the gay community, right? There are particular health problems in the Jewish community. I'm sure there are particular health problems in many different communities. We should be able to talk about it. One of the operating principles of global investing right now, but try to get someone to define with precision what ESG is, and no one will, because there is no precise definition, because the point of it is to push corporate investors to the left, and then, of course, to punish anyone who dissents. In pursuit of high ESG scores, poor countries like Sri Lanka have destroyed their economies and then saw their government toppled as a result. Countries like Germany are dimming their traffic lights to save electricity because ESG. So if ESG accelerates in this country, you can imagine where we will be. Very few politicians seem aware this is even happening. One who does know what's going on and is doing something to stop it is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. He has an announcement tonight about his plan to fight ESG in the state of Florida. Governor DeSantis joins us now. Governor, thanks so much for coming on and thanks for noticing this. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, so what are you going to do to push back? Well, Tucker, we're going to do a couple things. First, we are going to do through Florida's state pension system 
a flat ban on any type of ESG. And as you say, they like to wiggle around. It's basically a way for them to do politics. Uh, so yes. we're going to make sure that that fiduciary duty is defined very clearly and that they stick to that. Uh, we also want to provide protections for people in the financial marketplace from being discriminated against based on ideology. I mean, we've seen Wall Street banks discriminate against contractors who are involved in helping us against illegal immigration or against firearm manufacturers, things they don't like. So the upshot of all this, Tucker, is we want to stop these kind of masters of the universe from trying to do through economic power what they cannot achieve at the ballot box. And it's really exactly. an end run around democracy where they're trying to impose these things. And here in Florida, I want to be governed by the values of Destin, not the values of Davos. Well, that's exactly right. It's anti-democratic. I mean, so no, nobody ever votes. On, I mean, there's never been a vote on anything pertaining to, to ESG. Am I right? That's right. And what happens is, is you'll have asset managers who manage all these pension funds. You know, they will require ESG. The companies themselves will do it. I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, I do think part of this is there, there's woke employees in these companies and the yeah. inmates have basically run the asylum. So, the, so some of the CEOs bend to that. But I do think there's some of these CEOs, Tucker, who really like to exert power over the rest of us. And that's what we're doing. It'll be a disaster for our economy, uh, of course, with, with we've seen with the energy. But to have the economy politicized this way, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. But then also it takes power away from the American people and lodges it into these international corporate titans. Uh, and that's not, I think, what our founding fathers ever intended. It certainly isn't. And it's been going on for years. And I don't think I've ever heard a national level politician mention it, even mention it. Are, are other governors aware this is happening in their states with their state's pension funds? I think there I think there are. And I think that you're going to see some other states uh, do what Florida and then what I'd like to do is get a lot of the conservative states together and let's get our proxy voting rights on, on all of our funds. Let's combine those and vote as a block. Tucker, we'd have over a trillion dollars in assets between just the red states. That would make a difference uh, when you're talking about that. So we would be able to check uh, a lot of these ESG votes that are going on throughout corporate America. So I would urge all my fellow governors around the country, hell, Republican or Democrat, you know, let's band together and let's fight back against this so we can keep power to the people. Yeah, because the, the consequences we've seen around the world have been really, really severe. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, I appreciate your telling us about that. Thanks very much. Thanks. So as we've told you, we showed you the video, the government of Sri Lanka, the whole governing structure collapsed because of ESG. It decided to ban chemical fertilizers because climate. So up in Canada, Fidel Castro's potential son, Justin Trudeau, saw this and thought, we need more of that here. We'll tell you. Okay, so let's get back to Steve Saylor here, Gate Column. So in New York City, none of monkeypox's 336 victims so far have been women. Right. Similarly, in Washington, D.C., not one of the 122 patients with monkeypox is a woman. Right. Monkeypox is centered in the same urban and resort gay neighborhoods such as West Hollywood and Fire Island, from which AIDS dispersed four decades ago. It's now been found in 43 states. And one major reason is because gay men, despite their depiction in the narrative as being oppressed and marginalized, tend to spend a lot of money 
to travel to vast circuit parties to have sex with numerous male strangers. Right? So numerous cities encourage local entrepreneurs to host big gay parties and orgies to lure in tourists, despite the role that gay sex tourism plays in spreading infectious diseases. Think about last summer's Provincetown Town Bear Week super spreader event for the COVID Delta variant and the success of heavily advertised anti-HIV drugs have brought back 1970s attitudes towards industrial-scale gay promiscuity, which, if it's not spreading AIDS and if it's not spreading monkeypox, it spreads lots of other horrible diseases. And just like if you've got rampant disease in the pornography industry, right, it's not going to just stay in the pornography industry. If you have rampant disease in the Jewish community or the Jamaican community, or the Japanese community, all right? It's not just going to stay there. Diseases are going to spread. And so maybe we should stigmatize the behavior that spreads these horrible diseases. The more people that monkeypox infects, the more opportunities monkeypox has to evolve to become even more infectious, right? So the 2022 wave monkeypox tracks to homosexual parties in Spain and Belgium since being amped up by the usual Pride Month orgies in June. Right, so the world had plenty of warning to call off Pride Month orgies due to monkeypox, but Centers for Disease Control, the Prestige Press, did not even consider calling upon gay men to turn down their promiscuity and decadence because that would be stigmatizing. Right, so we had to cancel weddings and funerals over COVID. We had to ask people to stop going to church, but it's absolutely unthinkable to publicly ask gay orgies to cancel in 2022 because nothing in modern America is more hateful than causing gays to feel shame over going to an orgy. Right? The CDC issued a document July 12 titled Reducing Stigma in Communications and Community Engagement, right? T- telling the press to replay the aid strategy of lying to the general public. Right? Partners can help by providing monkeypox information to different communities and various channels, right? Tell different stories to different audiences. Be careful to avoid marginalizing groups who may be at increased risk for monkeypox. Right? Not exactly fact-based. Right? Focusing on cases among gay and bisexual men may inadvertently stigmatize this population and create a false sense of safety among those who are not gay and bisexual men. So among gays, the CDC wants to raise monkeypox awareness, but without the health authorities suggesting anything so unthinkable as that gays should uh, knock off the group sex with strangers till we can figure out what the hell is going on with this monkeypox thing. So the CDC put together a template letter for gay men attending circuit parties, massage parlors, spas, saunas, and sex clubs. Now, did it tell them they should cut out the orgies until further notice? Right, The way that we canceled school, church, and sports over COVID? Of course not. That would be homophobic. Said the CDC declared, We want you to have fun while at your orgy. So CNN article presents the CDC's comically non-peremptory health advice for gays, right? They weren't weren't so subtle in their health advice for straights and regular people during COVID. But when it comes to gays, think about reducing your number of partners, potentially trying to avoid anonymous contacts, ends up being smart from the perspective of decreasing risk exposure. You might want to reduce skin contact as much as possible by having sex with your clothes on or cover areas where the rash is present. 
right? These government formulations probably are written by gay men with advanced degrees who imagine that other gays can figure out what the hell they are vaguely hinting at. But forget that half of gay men have IQs below average and they just won't get it unless you explain it to them directly enough for non-gays to grasp it as well. So now monkeypox is spreading out of control and we have a few people who are becoming more realistic. Joseph Goldstein, the New York Times, hard-nosed municipal beat reporter, systematically presents the calls by dissident scientists within the New York City Health Department to finally ask gay men to temporarily restrain their self-indulgence to have a lot of sex with strangers. Right? If America actually had a homophobic culture, the government and media conspiring like this to bamboozle the public into thinking that this gay spread disease is a major threat to them might lead to a negative reaction to the actions of male homosexuals participating in orgies. So gays were truly as unpopular in American society. It'd be good for them, for the government, to reassure the majority that gays spreading monkeypox through their debauchery doesn't much threaten anyone else. In reality, gays are frequently high status and powerful, so the government is much more concerned about how it speaks to them, right? It's happy to be frank with the general citizens, but won't do so with regard to monkeypox in case that raises some naive eyes about gay male behavior. All right. So remember the mid-1980s, there was this huge push organized among the respectable to fearmonger the general public into believing that heterosexuals were at as much risk of getting HIV as gays. And of course, that was a big lie. Not true. January 6th was a violent insurrection, a violent insurrection, a violent insurrection. No matter how times they say it, it's not true. It was not a violent insurrection. But there are violent insurrections. You want to know what they look like? Pull up the video from Sri Lanka recently, when angry mobs come right over the wall, kick out the leaders of the government, swim in their pool, go through their sock drawer, start setting things on fire. Why'd that happen? It's not an inherently violent country. It happened because the governor of Sri Lanka was pushed to ban all chemical fertilizers. And that decision caused the price of food in Sri Lanka to double. And that causes massive instability and violence. So could we get policies like that here in the United States? Oh, yes, we could. They're on the way. In fact, they're already come to Canada. So first, Justin Trudeau, who, for the record, is a dictator, banned handguns. Now, according to the Toronto Sun, he's going after fertilizer. Quote, the federal government is looking to impose a requirement to reduce nitrous oxide emissions from fertilizers, saying it is a greenhouse gas contributing to climate change. Jerry Ritz knows a lot about agriculture in Canada, which is a huge ag producer. He's the former minister of agriculture in that country. And we're happy to have him join us tonight. Mr. Ritz, thanks so much for coming on. What would, if Trudeau does this, what will happen to Canadian agriculture? Well, I think Trudeau's banning fertilizer to that degree because he spreads enough himself. At the yes. end of the day, this is his petulance coming through in response to the trucker convoy that took over his home city uh, for about three weeks last winter. And then there's been other trucker rallies in support of what's happening around the world. Uh, you mentioned Sri Lanka. We saw what's happening there. These are salt-of-the-earth producers that have been pushed too far. We're seeing the same thing now in Holland, in Italy, and you'll see it in Canada, too, if he continues down this very dangerous path. As you rightly point out, the border between Canada and the U.S. is is just that. We're very synergistic when it comes to food production. We buy a yes. lot of inputs from the U.S., including nitrogen, and we send a lot of product to the U.S. to be processed and then exported to the rest of the world. So this is going to affect that uh, tenuous situation that he's putting us in. But it's food. 
I mean, the last world leader to mess with the food supply at scale was Mao Zedong, and he killed tens of millions of people in a famine. Isn't Trudeau worried when you mess with the food supply? You're, you're really messing with a, with, a, with a core structure in any society. I don't think he realizes the rabbit hole he's gone down and who he's pulling in with him. At the end of the day, Canadian production is already as environmentally friendly as you can possibly get. Can we do more? You know, we always will. At the end of the day, there's no recognition of that environmental stewardship that our farmers already do by cutting the use of fertilizer, by going to timed usage of fertilizer, by going to... Uh, elements like sulfur and magnesium and copper top dressing fields as they need it. We map our fields every year doing soil samples. There's very little acreage now that is not under the management of uh, agronomy professionals that then take that map, send it up to the cloud, and that then governs where your seeder puts fertilizer and seed down. It governs where your sprayer uh, makes those passes. So we're already as as environmentally friendly as we can with today's in, uh, technology. And, and there's more to come. We just had a big ag show here uh, in Saskatchewan, Ag in Motion called, and it was about 90% technology, the use of drones yeah. and so on. So for him to go to this extent, he is not looking at the big picture at all. Well, he has no idea where food comes from. No. None. And he may soon find out. No. Jerry Ritz, former ag minister in Canada. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Tucker. Thank you. So one of the rare upsides to the Internet is that parents have been able to see what's happening in their kids' classrooms, and they're upset about it justifiably. So a lot of parents are paying a lot more attention. Here's one extraordinary recent example from the state of Florida. I'm going to give a sampling from three books that are in our libraries, the Fleming School and the Oakleaf School. And then we can discuss... You can discuss the process by which these books get on the shelves because there's a Clay County employee that got paid to put this book, Lucky, by Alice Sebold. <clears throat> I'm going to read things. If there's children watching, cover their ears. He began to... I'm going to stop you right there, sir. I'm going to stop you right there. Turn the microphone mm -hmm. off. Turn off his microphone, please. I've told you I'm stopping you. There are federal and state laws that prohibit you from saying the things that you're getting ready to say on television. Oh, so it turns out there are fascists in charge. Ryan Gerdusky founded the 1776 Project PAC to elect school board members who are not fascists. He joins us tonight to remind us how important it is. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on and for what you're doing. You're focusing on small politics because you say it matters. Tell us why it matters. Right. The left oftentimes is using public education to sit there and push their radical ideology, not just because they want future Democrats. They're getting that, of course, but because they want to end civil society as we know it. Public right. schools is part of our social contract. We invest in them so we have an educated workforce who knows reading, writing, arithmetic, but also so people love the republic, that they want to include and be involved in it, that they want to invest in, in the future, that they want children to be invested in the future, and they want to take care of us when we're old. When, you, when you're told, telling a child that they are perpetually a racist or that they are victims of racism or that every institution is racist, well, then they, that whole structure breaks apart in seconds. And it's happening right. in red counties and in red states. And it's really about local politics, getting involved in small local politics. And that's what my PAC, 1776 Project PAC, does. I mean, it's suicidal, is it not, to tell the next generation of Americans that America is terrible? Like, what, what's the end game here? 
Well, the end game is to sit there and have more of a critical theory-based politics. But look at, I mean, perfect example, you, that was Duval County. In Indian River County in Florida, a red county, voted for Trump twice, Bush Trump twice, uh, McCain, Romney. I they know have the county, yeah. Yeah, they have a policy right now in their schools, it's right now, where they're going to end disparities on suspensions based on race. Only way you could do that is if you punish some kids more based on their race and some kids less based on their race. And August 23rd is a very important day. It's the day every school board county in Florida is up for a vote. And it's also primary day. But the Senate and the governor on the Republican side don't have competitive primaries. So if you don't vote on that day and the candidate gets over 50 percent of the vote, they don't go to November. August 23rd is an essential day. That's why my pack. OK, that's that's enough. Uh, let, let's go for some good news on this horrifying monkeypox story. So Henry Filior here on the left is a 42-year-old black bartender. He's a freelance writer in Brooklyn. He turned to what he described as a black, queer, underground railroad of assistance. It's an informal network of men sharing leads about how to get shots, meaning vaccines against monkeypox. So he turns to the black, queer, underground railroad of assistance. So when he arrived for his first dose in mid-July, found a striking contrast between the staff administering the shots, who appeared to be exclusively people of color, and the people getting the shots looked to be mostly white. He's trying to close that gap by directly messaging dozens of queer Twitter followers of color to help them score vaccine appointments too. Inspiring. See, one man can make a difference. All right, interesting article in the New York Times that uh, didn't really... Th I vaguely knew this, but uh, David Wallace-Wells, right? He's consistently thoughtful, and he's got an opinion piece in the New York Times today. Hardly anyone talks about how fracking was an extraordinary boondoggle, right? So fracking has been, for almost all of its history, a money-losing boondoggle. It's profitable only recently. So uh, fracking's not profitable unless the... Price per, per barrel goes, what, above $90? Right? But it's been propped up by so much investment from venture capital and Wall Street. Right? So the American shale revolution did bring the country independent energy independence. Right? It reshaped the entire geopolitical landscape for fuel. But on average, for, for every dollar invested in fracking, 30 cents were lost. Right? Between 2010 and 2020, U.S. shale lost $300 billion dollars. From 2002 to 2012, Chesapeake, the industry leader, did not report a positive clash flow once. It ended that period with total losses of $30 billion. Between mid-2012 and mid-2017, the 60 biggest fracking companies were losing an average of $9 billion each quarter. From 2006 to 2014, fracking companies lost $80 billion. In 2014, with oil at $100 a barrel, right? Fracking companies lost $20 billion. All right. So fracking was a genuine energy transition. But it was incredibly, incredibly expensive. So we are frequently told that rushing a green transition will be just too expensive. It'll impose too huge a burden on taxpayers. All right. But for many of these years... All right, we had enormous, enormous losses in fracking, right? About 30 cents on every dollar invested in fracking was a loss. So what does it mean to call green energy expensive, but fracking is cheap, right? Why did America decide it was okay to lose money on fracking, 
but it's an anathema to lose money on green energy. So thoughtful challenge to my habitual ways of thinking there from David Wallace Wells in the New York Times. One reason I enjoy reading the New York Times. So what the heck is going on with Jordan Peterson? I've never had strong feelings about Jordan Peterson in any direction, but let's get a little burst here. Tendencies, right? Yeah, well, actually, curious. that's one thing, Chris, that crossed my mind as listening to this, you know, because he's doing what he always does, which is tell everyone what's wrong with them, how they need to change to live a better life and so on. And has he ever addressed the fact that he fucked up his own life so very badly and is just obviously demonstrably not handling the problem of living life very well compared to a couple of nihilist, you know, fallen de <laughs> demons like us wallowing in our own corpulence? You know, our lives are perfect, but psychologically, we haven't, we haven't had to visit Russia recently. Yeah. So, but I, I guess, you know, the, the kind of point is, well, but look how influential and successful he's been because of, oh, of what he does, oh, yeah. right? Oh, like, yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. Difference. And he carries such a heavy cross that. I guess the benzo, the benzo is. We, we can call. barely mm. imagine the mm. slings and arrows and the burden that he straps to his shoulders in this hellish life that he must endure. But look, Matt, we said we were going <laughs> to a condensed little snap episode. We'll cut about, it down. We'll I, cut it down. It'll be fine. I don't think we've exactly managed that, but I do think we have successfully highlighted where Jordan is from where he was, and it might be interesting for people to go back and look to the older episode where we covered Jordan. We also did an episode with him. Okay, that's from uh, decoding the gurus. So. Yeah, Jordan Peterson, all right? He, he's the self-help guru, but has he paused, reflected about his his own role in his own troubles, right? Not in, so much. Breath after That's right. It, but so much has happened to me that's been so strange in the last four years that I have a very difficult time making any sense of it. I can't even really think about, especially the last two years, I can't really think about them in any consistent and comprehensive way. I mean, my, my family situation has been so catastrophic and my illness and my wife's illness, it's just been, although she recovered, Completely, thank God. It's just been so utterly catastrophic that, that my, my thinking about it is unbelievably fragmented. I'm, and I'm, I'm struck dumb still to some degree by, by all of what emerged as a consequence of me making the first videos that I made. It wasn't easy to take me out. Although I've been taken out a lot. Like, far more than I thought might be possible. Um, I can't separate that exactly from intrinsic health problems, you know. It doesn't seem to, but you know, there's always the possibility that it'll be the next one that'll work. And it's not like I have any shortage of things wrong with me. There are things wrong with me, you know, now, whether they're ethical things or not, that's a whole different question, but like nobody has a, nobody has a, uh, what, uh, no one has an untrammeled conscience. That's for sure. There was a degree of responsibility taking down or seemed to be. That's what I mean. Like he's, he's gone now. Like this is the new Jordan. It's a new phase. He's back in the saddle firing on all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, even at that time he was reluctant to offer opinions COVID vaccines, right? So that like, yeah, that that's about the extent to which uh, Jordan P Peterson has done some introspection about his own addictions and how they ruined his life and, and negatively affected the lives of other people. Joe Biden staggered into the Rose Garden today to brag about how he's technically still alive after getting Rona. The crowd was, well, he couldn't contain their emotions. Watch. Hello, everyone. I've uh, just tested negative for COVID-19 after isolating for five days. <laughs> Thankfully, I'll now be able to return to work in person. I get to go back to the Oval Office. Thank you all very much. <laughs> so they hired people to cheer. One person who didn't even bother to cheer was Kamala Harris. Rumor has it she was the only person not clapping when Biden said he'd recovered from Rona. We didn't even hear her cackle. We listened carefully. 
What's also strange is how Biden recovered. It's clear the White House had him on something. We don't mean that new COVID drug. Look at his eyes. This was taken from a video on Biden's Twitter account. He doesn't blink in the video. Ask yourself, have you ever seen Joe Biden's eyes that wide open? Whatever he's taken ought to be publicly available for all of us. Share it, man. That's it. That's it for us. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yes, it's completely, that hesitancy is completely gone. And it, it may be that he just is rolling down the hill again towards the inevitable outcome. But who knows? We'll, we'll see. And I, I just think he's, people will say this is who he always was. And I kind of agree with them that the fundamental message underlying his content hasn't changed. But there are things which have changed and it's notable. And people are picking up on it, right? It's why he's being clipped so widely and so on. And you, you can look back at this older content and like that clip with the Vice interview where he basically says, I don't know if men and women can work together. It's an experiment. And that's the kind of thing where people are like, oh, that's out of context. But when you actually take the context, no, that is what he was arguing. And when you take that down, the argument is, well, should we have sex segregated workplaces? Or should we ban lipstick from the workplace, right? Like that's essentially what it comes down to, but it's just never expressed so clearly. And when people try to point out that it's kind of, well, that's not being fair. That's not exactly what he said. But Okay, let's have a look at uh, this quick Joe Biden video, another great day on, on Twitter. Right, so Folks, as have we a look fight at inflation, this. you can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. Bringing down gas prices is a big part of the job. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. And here's the good news. Gas prices have dropped every day this summer. That's more than 40 days in a row. Donald Trump lacked the courage to act. We now have 40,000 gas stations in the United States where the price of gas is $3.99 or less. The brave women and men in blue all across this nation should never forget that. Look at those How eyes. How do get the price down? Well, the new report right, today shows that, that from the folks, as we day. fight inflation, right, the same you day. can't be pro-insurrection and pro-cop. What the hell? Bringing down gas prices. Look at the difference in his eyes. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. And here's the good news. Gas prices have dropped every day this summer. That's more than 40 days in a row. Donald out. Trump lacked the courage to act. We now have 40,000 gas stations in the United States where the price of gas is $3.99 or less. Are, are, the brave women and men in blue all across this nation should never forget that. Okay, another great day on Twitter. Right, you can eat at a restaurant in Toronto. It uh, hires only HIV positive chefs. Right, no one has a problem with violence until the outnumbered white guy has a gun. So, check out this attack here. Come on, man. Right. To use, try to beat down this white guy. And then he pulls out his gun. And they, uh, they think better of it. Alright, let's see.
Okay. A little bit more here from decoding the gurus. That is what his social conservatism ultimately has at its core. So yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what the limits of his social conservatism is. Yeah, I don't. It's left unbounded. Like he alludes to it and hints at it, as you say, he gestures towards pretty extreme stuff. But it's it's, just, it's left as a open. It's a question. We don't question. know. Yeah. We don't know. We just don't know. The amount of things we don't know, it's huge. So, so yeah. So Joe, so Jordan Peterson, right, hasn't taken much accountability and displayed much introspection about his addiction to benzos and much of his current behavior just seems to demonstrate many of the characteristics of the, the addict also demonstrates the characteristics of the perils of the e-personality i mean he has been captured by his audience he's you know been captured by these feedback loops and he's getting warped right because if you're a content creator right you you feel this strong drive to give the audience more and more of what it wants. Now, thank God I'm so perverse that I feel a very strong audience uh, drive to <laughs> give my audience exactly what it doesn't want. But as we watch all these e-celebs and public intellectuals become more and more extreme, the whole concept of flanderization is useful here. So there's a character in The Simpsons named Ned Flanders, right? And he was originally depicted as a friendly, generous Christian and a model father, model husband, and model citizen, making him a strong contrast to Homer Simpson. But as the seasons progressed, right, Ned Flanders increasingly became obsessively religious to the point where he eventually embodied you know, every negative stereotype of the American Christian evangelist. And so for Jordan Peterson, he just keeps leaning more and more into the reward circuit of the right wing of the culture war. He's increasingly losing any desire for nuance or mutual understanding of the other side, right? he's become an angry caricature of himself. So in 2017, he seemed to many people to be an unfairly maligned thinker, someone who was simply critical of the growing intolerance of the censorious left. So I'm reading here from the, the website Rebel Wisdom. But he, he seems now to be in uh, just lashing out all, all over the place. And no wrestling with, with his own demons, all right? He's seemed to have returned from his myriad health crises and his family frame his experience as a drug dependency, right? It's not an addiction, right? He just has this incredible number of personal crises to deal with over the last few years. It's a drug dependency, guys. It's not an addiction. So addiction specialists will often describe addiction as any behavior that causes short-term relief and long-term problems that the person cannot stop. An addiction can take many forms from drugs to alcohol to compulsive behavior of any kind, such as Twitter, right? So Jordan Peterson seems to refuse to admit and to deal with his addictions, which is a contradiction of his fundamental message of personal responsibility. It's also a dangerous message of denial to send out to other addicts, right? The, the addictive personality seems to be taking over Jordan Peterson, Right, the writer Helen Lewis had a famous and combative interview with John Peterson for GQ magazine. She makes the following observation. So the Jordan Peterson of the book Beyond Order, that preacher of personal responsibility, dances around the question of whether his own behavior might have contributed to his health breakdown. Right? Was it really wise to agree to all these brutal interviews, drag himself out to all these international speaking events, send all those tweets that set the internet on fire? So like a rock star spiraling into burnout, Jordan Peterson was consumed by the pyramid scheme of fame. 
He was parceling himself out faster and faster to everyone who wanted a piece. Perhaps he didn't want to let people down. Perhaps he loved to feel needed. Perhaps he enjoyed having an online army, glorying in his triumphs and pursuing his enemies. So in our frenzied media culture, can a hero ever return home victorious and just simply resume his normal life? Or does the lure of another adventure, another tweet, another dragon to slay, another liberal to own, always call out to him? So Jordan Peterson has gazed into the culture war abyss. He's like those of us who can't resist that pointless Facebook argument. He's another person who feels the sugar rush of the self-righteous Twitter dunk. He exalts in the defeat of an opposing political tribe, even an adjacent portion of our own. It's an unhealthy behavior, furiously lashing out while knowing that counterattacks will follow. It's a modern form of self-harm. And yet, in Beyond Order, Jordan Peterson places the blame solely on the hypothetically safe but truly dangerous benzodiazepine anti-anxiety medication he was prescribed by his family doctor. Right, The book leaves you wishing that Jordan Peterson, the tough therapist, would ask hard questions of Jordan Peterson, the public intellectual. And Jordan Peterson's response to this tweet was, why do you hate me so much? Right, So there's a serious lack of personal responsibility with, with Jordan Peterson. He, he just solely portrays himself as the victim. Come on, man. You can do better. That the good, healthy society that, that this evil perspective demonizes is inherently masculine. masculine. Yeah, it's, it's the adventurous, masculine, striving, conquering spirit. And yeah, it's easy to miss, but... Um, with the divine yeah. logos, which for Jordan Peterson involves, you know, as he's spelled out in other content, emulating Christ. Yeah. And there's a very heavy theocentric and traditional Christian uh, morality play attached to his ideal conception of the world. It's like kind of 1950s, yeah. uh, the imagination of 1950s America. It is, in fact. Actually, Chris, this is a bit of an aside of our own, but it's fun. I've been reading, well, listening to an Audible, the original Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, we, we both enjoyed it. We watched the TV series recently, and I read it when I was a kid. So I thought I'd reread them today. And, you know, it's good. It's, it's not bad for a bit of classic sci-fi, but... Man, I mean, I'm not usually particularly a sensitive reader when it comes to that kind of, you know, politically incorrect social mores in old-fashioned science fiction. I guess it was written in the 50s. But yeah, it reminds me of this because it does strike a discordant note to, to the modern era because the kind of thing that Isaac Asimov is describing is kind of what Jordan Peterson is describing, right? Like all the characters are men. The women don't have any role in anything apart from to be victims or bossed around or just little side characters and they're all kind of silly and emotional and so on. And the men are all these sort of grizzled 1950s types and they're smoking cigars in the future, <laughs> which is another little thing that kind of feels weird. But they're all... Like they're all like tough, like hard boiled, tough guys. And it's sort of the vision of how society works, even in the far distant future, is, is that 1950s hyper masculine, hyper dominating, hyper aggressive and competitive and just power oriented thing. And yeah, Isaac Asimov sort of took that as a given, which was interesting. So anyway, I, th I think you're right. He's just a very, very conserv socially conservative guy. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, his whole aesthetic style also represents that. So, but let's move on a little bit to him. In, in this clip, he doesn't use the word, but he's basically complaining about, you know, the concept of toxic masculinity and how it's applied. So let's see if he does a good job of that. This is not only wrong, theologically, morally, psychologically, practically, and scientifically. It is literally anti-true. It's not a mere misstatement about the nature of reality, a minor conceptual error, but something that literally could not be farther from the truth. And something that distant from the truth comes from a place that cannot be distinguished from hell. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a nice example of good old-fashioned rhetoric, isn't it? Like, it sounds very analytical, doesn't it? You know, it's not, not merely wrong, but actually the antithesis of truth. I mean, it, just, it's, it boils down to saying he just really, this is a place where hell, you know, this is hell, this is the devil would be saying something like this. It's that untrue. You're just saying that you don't like it. You're just saying you don't agree with it. You can just say that. Yeah. The, you know, for somebody who 
has a habit of complaining about people being hyperbolic, you know, on the left side of the spectrum. My God, man, that is... And also, especially given Jordan Peterson's rather loose attachment to what the word truth refers to. Like he famously had multiple hours with Sam Harris trying to debate that truth does not actually necessarily relate to like something being, you know, objectively <laughs> yeah. true. So It's very, very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, look, this is really raising the stakes for Jordan Peterson in terms of his, his guru status. Like the CEO profound bullshit here is just really strong. Like he, he's a good speaker, especially edited like this. Very articulate. There's a whole bunch of big words and it's strung together and it gives the impression of someone who is is being truthy. Eloquent. Yeah, eloquent, eloquent, but also precise and saying something profound. And But if you stop and think about it, he's just riffing. He's just saying they're wrong. He's just saying they're wrong. That's right. And he's, he's saying it using 50 words and big words of that for dramatic effect. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, just again, you could take issue with the way that toxic masculinity is used in, in progressive spaces without going to these levels, right? It's histrionic. But Chris, I guess as well as it being histrionic, it does serve a role in terms of translating whatever point he's making into that cosmic arch yeah. architecture that he has, which is like social justice warriors and whatever are not just wrong it's not, not not just a pernicious influence on society like it's literally the devil you know something that's yeah. this untrue is coming from hell yeah so it's a, it's a slight hand in a couple of different ways yeah and uh so now we get i mean we already have it but now there's a more explicit pivot towards the christian aspect of that so let's continue on the christian church is there to remind people young men included and perhaps even first and foremost that they have a woman to find a garden to walk in a family to nurture an ark to build a land to conquer a ladder to heaven to build and the utter terrible catastrophe of life to face stalwartly in truth, devoted to love. So one point just to note there, Matt, I, I saw from your eyes that you picked it up as well. Jordan's characterization of life was the utter terrible catastrophe of life to face stalwartly, right? So that fits with his presentation that we saw in the earlier content where he has this fixation on pain and suffering and supposedly talking about the unacknowledged beauty of existence and stuff, but really heavily fixating on the dark, oppressive components of life. There's an idea that people are fallen and they've fallen into the terrible realm of history and self-consciousness with its knowledge of suffering and finitude and its necessity for work, which is associated with that. Because if you know that, if you know that there's you and that you know that you can suffer because you're limited and that you could die, then you're cursed with work. Because even if you're okay right now, you're not like a lion who's going to go to sleep and be happy or like the zebra beside it who won't run away when the lion is sleeping. We know about the future. So we're cursed to work and make sacrifices constantly. That's our, that's our destiny, let's say. And it's, it's an interesting thing, given the rest of it, which is presenting that basically you are the first person character, the main person in a glorious story that is yet unwritten. And that part as well, the language at the start where he says, you know, well, the Christian church has a message for everyone, but perhaps first and foremost to young men. And then the examples are go and find a maiden like <laughs> kill a dragon build an ark right it's it's the there seems to be a rather strong emphasis on the message to young men as, as the potential heroes of their own stories there yeah well many would dispute some of that stuff particularly that the church particularly has a responsibility to minister to young men over and above other demographics i don't think many priests ministers would say that but i actually read an article from a like a conservative christian pastor in the united states who, who didn't like what Jordan said here. And he spotted the same thing I did, which is that Jordan Peterson has mischaracterized what a Christian church's role here on earth is for. It's not to help young men go and slay a dragon and conquer new lands and find a maiden, all that stuff. That's, that's Jordan Peterson sort of imposing like his own thing onto the church. I, I wouldn't do a very good job of presenting how churches see their mission here, but I, I think it's, it's roughly on the lines of that, yes, you're in a body and it's decaying and there's this physical world, but it's there to remind you to lift your eyes to the kingdom of heaven and so on. And there's an afterlife and so on. And there's this beautiful, serene eternity. That's different. That's very different from what Jordan well, Peterson said. I think that Jordan Peterson, like you said, is adding his interpretation on it, which is essentially that 
for him, the Christian story is this narrative that, if followed, provides all of the tools to become the heroic, competent male figure. And and I think he would also head nod towards that. Yes, this applies to women too, but it's quite clear who the emphasis is on in his material. But So he is adding that for him, the Christian mythos is not just a kind of supernatural morality play, but the guide to being a fully realized human. And I think there are various people in different church denominations who, who peddle a similar message that, you know, following the Christian life is not just about your spiritual salvation, but it's actually about transforming yeah. your life here by embodying, you know, Christ-like qualities. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, it's complicated, obviously. We've got lots of churches, like, the, you know, modern Catholic Church has got a big thing in terms of social justice, making the world a better place and contributing to community. And, you know, all churches generally have stuff about contributing to community and so on. But the way he's framing it, he's, he's misrepresenting it. Like, it, it varies, it's complicated, whatever. But Jordan Peterson's characterization of it is not quite right. Yeah, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but I think the way that the video ends is quite relevant to this discussion. So let me just play that. Your churches, for God's sake, quit fighting for social justice. Quit saving the bloody planet. Attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your holy duty. Do it now before it's too late. The hour is nigh. <laughs> okay, this is from the excellent podcast, Decoding the Gurus, a couple of center-left academics here, decoding Jordan Peterson's recent video for Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. So, like, Jordan Peterson sees religion as kind of a... Like, I, I think this message actually illustrates how Jordan Peterson isn't really a proper Christian. Like amongst left-wing circles, he's seen as a Christian advocate and so on. And he is kinder, but when he's perceived from people within like an orthodox tradition, like, you know, he's an abstracted, you know, Christian. He's got a very bespoke Jungian archetypal symbolic kind of interpretation of it in, in which religion is there as a support structure for being the sort of John Wayne exhortation to young men to be all they can be. It's, it's different from well, how an orthodox religious person would see it, I think. I mean, I think possibly, but there are trends in, like all traditions have lots of different strands within them. And I think basically Jordan channels an extremely conservative perspective, like a kind of traditionalist perspective, but he de-emphasizes aspects, this, you know, the overt supernaturalist and kind of retreats to metaphor and, and unclear components for, the, for that part. Yeah, like you were saying with truth, right? Like he won't even be clear and say that he believes that God exists. He says he lives no. his life as though God exists. But, you know, religious apologetics are quite sophisticated and have been doing similar things for centuries, re redefining the way that, you know, how you approach truth and validate things and that kind of stuff. But I think that one point I might disagree with is the notion that he's not doing justice to what a, a Christian or religious worldview offers. Because I would argue that that last part where he reels against social justice and saving the planet, that like in some respects, it's very hard. Okay, let's get a brief burst here from, I can't believe it, Sean Hannity. That is the People's Republic of China. It is a massive problem. Two years after infecting the world with COVID-19, China's communist dictatorship is now openly threatening to invade Taiwan. They're waging a bloody genocide against the country's minority Uyghur population. They're trampling on human rights in Hong Kong, and they're threatening our own Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. This is a line that's being crossed when we visit an ally, Taiwan. Sadly, China's Communist Party is also a malignant force in the United States. Intellectual property theft, mass production of fentanyl that they bring to our southern border, widespread espionage. China is constantly looking to get ahead at our expense. It's a hostile regime and led by a hostile actor. Now, even worse is China is now harvesting your data, spying on your family in plain sight. They do it through the popular Chinese-owned 
app known as TikTok. Here's Joe Rogan explaining why TikTok is and can be a legitimate threat to your privacy and your security. Take a look at this. I think they saw that people are addicted to social media and they came up with the most addictive version of social media, which is TikTok. It's the most addictive by far. It's the yeah. best for sucking people in. My, my kids are f***ing hook, line, sinkered on that And I know a lot of other people are hook, line, sinkered to grown people. It's good. It's good. And it starts playing things immediately. The moment you turn it on, it's like playing you a new thing, playing right. you a new thing. You're like, Aah! and you just sucked into it. And all the while, it's monitoring your keystroke. Audio settings. Well, by audio settings, that means it has access to your microphone. That means it's listening to you right now. Just tell me how it right ends, now. man. It ends with China having all of your data. And if they develop if a, they get a all sort the data, of digital then currency. What? Then what? Well, you're f And to be clear, we're not accusing Joe Rogan of being a conservative. Might get upset. Now to recap. China. Okay. So have you guys seen the HBO TV series Tokyo Vice? I just watched that. It was, it was quite compelling. And it's based on a 2010 memoir by Jake Edelstein. All right. So the 2010 memoir is called Tokyo Vice, an American reporter on the police beat in Japan. He was the first foreigner hired to be a journalist for Japan's biggest selling newspaper. So the newspaper he writes for has 12 million paying subscribers. Can you believe that? So here are some highlights from the book. So the the people on top of this newspaper were very curious about him being Jewish. They wanted to know if he believed that uh, Jews run the world. They asked him, can you work on the Sabbath? He said, that's not a problem. Can you eat sushi? He says, uh, that's not a problem either. And he gets some advice. There are eight rules to being a good reporter. One, don't ever burn your sources. Two, finish your story as soon as possible. The life of news is short. Miss the chance and the story is dead or the scoop is gone. Three, never believe anyone. People lie, police lie, even your fellow reporters lie. Assume you're being lied to and proceed with caution. Good rule for life. Four, take any information you can get. People are good and bad. Information is not. Information is what it is. It doesn't matter who gives it to you, where you steal it. The quality, the truth of the information, that is what's important. So if it turns out, for example, that different groups have different gifts, then that's simply information, right? It's not good or bad. Information is, and it's worth respecting. Five, remember and persist. Stories that people forget come back to haunt them. Keep paying attention. Six, triangulate your stories, especially if they aren't an official announcement from authorities. If you can verify information from three different sources, odds are good that the information is good. Seven, write everything in reverse pyramid. Put the most important information first. Eight, never put your personal opinions in a story. So national news was the place to be. National news reporters worked the longest, drank the most, got divorced the most often, died the earliest. And uh, his boss tells him about becoming a good reporter. It's not about learning. It's about unlearning. It's about cutting off ties, cutting out things like having a personal life, getting rid of preconceptions, losing everything you thought you knew. That sounds a little bit like the advice I give to Alexander Technique students, all right? Or just people in general. If you want to uh, have a, a new, fresh breath to let go of unnecessary tension in your face or your neck or your back, just uh, for five seconds, let go of everything that you think you know.
just tremendously freeing to move into a state of awareness rather than judgment. When you're in a state of judgment, you will inherently start tightening up. When you're in a state of awareness, you'll start to let go of your unnecessary muscular tension. So if you want to be an excellent reporter, he's told you have to amputate your past life. You have to let go of your pride, your free time, your hobbies, your preferences, and your opinions. If you have a girlfriend, she'll be gone soon. You have to act friendly to people you don't like politically, socially, and ethically. You have to pay deference to the senior reporters. You have to not judge people, but learn to judge the value of the information they give you. You have to cut down on your sleeping hours, your exercise time, and your time to read books. So he was asked if he was willing to give his loyalty to the corporation. Your life will boil down to reading the paper, drinking with your sources, watching the news, checking to see if you've been scooped, and meeting deadlines. You learn to let go of what you want to be the truth and find out what is the truth. You report it as it is, not as you wish it was. Let go of your preconceptions, your dignity, and your pride and get the job done. So the Japanese press is often characterized by the foreign media as a bunch of sycophantic lapdog office workers. Not always the case. Now, one thing I learned in this book and this series is that the Japanese police are highly reluctant to define murders as murders, right? They would rather explain them away as a manslaughter or as an accident. So the murder rate in Japan is a lot higher than the official statistics. It's just like in Catholic countries, they tend to have a very low suicide rate. And that's not because Catholic countries have such close interpersonal ties so that people don't want to commit suicide. It's that in Catholic countries, they're highly reluctant to report suicides. They want to define suicides as accidents. In Japan, they want to define murders as accidents. So Japanese press tends to be highly deferential to authority, even more so than the American. It's quite hard apparently to convince your editor that it's safe to run a story if there's no official press release behind it everything in japan even theft is an art even assault is an art uh, the end of the old year the beginning of the new year monumentally important events in japan japanese believe there's a right way to live a right way to love a right way to induce female orgasms a right way to chop off your pinky if you're in the Yakuza. So it sounds very much like Ernest Hemingway's approach to life. There's a right way to take off your shoes. There's a right way to commit adultery. There's a right way to swing a bat. There's a right way to write an article about a homicide. There's a right way to die. There's a right way to kill yourself, right? So everything in Japan is an art. There's a artsy way, a perfect way to do everything. So reverence for the way is an integral part of Japanese society. It's a society that loves manuals and loves doing things by the book. So the number one best-selling book in Japan at the time of this writing was a manual for how to argue with Koreans who don't have nice things to say about Japan. Number one best-selling book. So Koreans keep moaning about Japan evading Korea, enslaving their people, raping their women, forbidding their language and culture, performing biological experiments on Koreans and kidnapping thousands of Koreans, shipping them off to Japan to work in sweatshops. So the thrust of the book is tell those miserable Koreans to stop exaggerating and to shut up. The uh, job of a police reporter is characterized as being a male geisha, right? Male prostitute. There's a lot of heavy entertaining. There's more than a little foreplay, right? <laughs> you have to entertain 
and hang out with the police to get your scoops? Do you take care of the cop that you want to crack? Have you asked him his birthday, his place of birth, his family lineage, the birthdays of his wife and kids, his wedding anniversary, when his kids start school, when they found a job, what holidays or special events the family is coming up? Do you say proper greetings on those occasions or even better, bring a present? Or part of being a police reporter in Japan. So have you seen this HBO series, Tokyo Vice, eight episodes? I thought it was excellent. To argue that him lecturing the churches about, you know, dropping that message when, from my Catholic upbringing, you know, they taught me to bring the good news to the poor, tell prisoners that they are prisoners no more, and so on. Like, whatever way you look at it, there's been a huge emphasis in Christian doctrine on the salvation of souls, yes, but on justice components, right? And and even yep. institutions like the Catholic Church, where they are extremely conservative in so many ways, yep. have also argued that it is part of the Christian faith that they have to be good stewards of the environment, right? The current Pope made an encyclical, yep. I think it was this Pope, yep. that, about that. That's right. So, so yeah, exactly. Like even in the medieval period, there were like the, the churches were the ones who set up hospitals, right? So they were looking after people's bodies as well as their souls, right? So I don't think that the environment or poverty or disease is necessarily off limits to, to, to the church. That's completely true. And I agree with that. And, you know, the kind of, again, the dramatic villain delivery is just, it's it's cringeworthy. But I guess my pushback is that there are strands of conservatism within all of these Christian traditions mm. who would be very much on board with Jordan Peterson's view that the church shouldn't be promoting environmentalism, sure. oh, yeah. no, no, should like, like be, should always stay a hundred miles away from anything that looks like modern social justice yeah. endorsements. No, I agree with you. Those factions exist, right? There's, there's so many factions across. Michael O'Fallon. Yeah, Michael, look, they exist. There's so many factions, and this is why we're struggling to characterize what churches really do. But I'm just saying that Jordan Peterson is being incoherent. If he's saying that the churches have a responsibility to help young men make their bed and you know contribute to a masculine, confident, conquering society, if that's their job, then you can't say that looking after sick people or worrying about poverty or the environment is off limits either, right? Okay, back to this book, uh, Tokyo Vice, turned into an HBO miniseries. So here's how to cultivate police sources. Hang out with their family, your family at the same time. Ultimate way to cultivate a source. Families that play together, stay together. Have you ever taken your kids and your wife with you on a Saturday and stopped by the cop's home because we were in the neighborhood? Do you think the system creates a very cop-friendly, biased reporting style? You're absolutely correct. Japanese police are extremely adept at manipulating the press. For a reporter, dating is impossible. My budding relationship with my first serious Japanese girlfriend effectively ended with a phone call, not from her, but from my boss at nine in the evening. It was the first day off I'd had in three weeks, and I-Chan and I were on my futon catching up on some long-missed sex when the phone rang. I had no choice but to dismount and pick it up. I was told that there was a murder and I needed to get on the scene. I started pulling on my clothes and my girlfriend pouted. I'm sorry, hon, I've got to go to work. You bastard. You've gone, but I haven't gone yet. So in Japan, the act of achieving orgasm is referred to not as coming, but as going. So apparently the young Japanese are above what is known as the three K jobs. Kitanai, dirty, kitsui, difficult, and kurushi, painful. When he comes back to his apartment, it's empty. There's a note from Ai-chan on the futon saying it's over. The stuff was gone. She'd made up the futon, she'd washed the dishes in the sink, she'd cleaned out the bathtub, she'd taken out the trash. It was the most considerate breakup I'd ever experienced. So he notes that the order of birth is a big deal in Japan. I was chewed out many times for not checking whether a person named in an article was the oldest second or youngest son or daughter. Even when there is an only child involved, you refer to him as oldest daughter or eldest son. So the sex shops in Japan used to be called Turkish bars. And uh, this so offended one Turk 
in Japan that he mounted a campaign right, to get the name changed. So eventually Japan gave in to international pressure, solved the problem by calling it Sex Shops Soapland. Now, the Japanese term for a blow-up sex doll is Dutch Wife. The embassy of the Netherlands, however, has yet to launch a formal protest. Intimacy is a commodity in Japan. It rarely comes for free. It's the same way in America. We just pay different people. In the United States, we pay psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, and life coaches to listen to our problems, to raise our self-esteem, to pretend to like us, and to uh, give us good advice. All right, but uh, in Japan, you pay different people. So... In Japan, you, you pay a hostess. Japanese tend to think that going to a shrink is a sign of weakness and admission of mental illness. So when the Japanese man wants his ego as opposed to his penis stroked, when he wants to be fussed over or have someone listen to his problems, he doesn't go home to his wife. He goes to a hostess club. Hostess club is not a sex club. It's usually a small bar with several attractive women who will greet you warmly, sit down and chat with you on a sofa, sing karaoke with you and act as if they were your lover or your flirt. And I'm continuing to make my way through this terrific book by philosopher Ronnie Goodman. It's called Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So he notes that the multicultural left loves to celebrate non-Western cultures as the noble victims of Western imperialism, but they paper over the inconvenient fact that these non-Western cultures tend to be racist, chauvinist, and homophobic, right? And the left tend, claims to reject those values, but they don't really have a problem when it's non-Western cultures who are embodying them. So the left refuses to denounce these non-Western cultures as barbaric and retrograde because it wants to maintain its victim solidarity with the third world. But then... These left-wing multiculturalists use the third world for their own purposes, turning its people into mouthpieces for the sophisticated left-wing critiques of American society. So they subordinate understanding of Asia, African, and Latin America to Western ideological prejudices. So the left has embarked on a new cultural imperialism, no less narrow and no less bigoted than that of colonialist researchers in safari outfits and pitch helmets. And given that most European countries have democratically chosen to relinquish many of their economic liberties in the interests of economic security and equality, why can't Muslim countries choose to give up some of their civil liberties to promote civic morality? The right should organize an international conference on the effects of Hollywood and American popular culture on non-Western cultures. It'd be fascinating to hear from Muslims and other traditional people about how their local cultures are being affected by Hollywood movies and TV shows. What basis would self-styled American liberals object to a proposal that's so open-minded and multicultural? So whether at home or abroad, the forcible imposition of liberalism is a form of aggression or paternalistic colonialism. So why can't we demand that liberals treat American traditionalists with the same deference they extend to denizens of the developing world? Now, it used to be that the inner need for meaning was satisfied through religion. But as religious faith has begun a retreat starting in the 18th century, the intellectual's need for meaning did not decline. It remained absolutely urgent. Now, meaning must be found for intellectuals in a secular belief system. 
And what fits this for most intellectuals is politics. Right, so some intellectuals find meaning in fields like scientific inquiry, but for the vast majority of intellectuals, politics must be the answer to their need for meaning. So to have a civil religion, this sort of politics cannot be the politics of mundane clashes of material interests and compromise. It must be a politics of ideology. It must be woke. So left-wing politics, which offer a comprehensive worldview and the promise of ultimate salvation in a utopia that conventional politics simply cannot offer. So the religious impulse underlies left-wing radicalism. So when many German intellectuals turned against a religion, you got a rise in the economic eschatological faith of socialism and then a rise in faith of national socialism and Nazism. So these left-wing intellectuals want to believe that their values rest on solid intellectual foundations, but what they are really expressing is their desperate inner need for meaning. They've lost their moorings in traditional religion, so they now pursue these ad hoc spiritual satisfactions in radical politics, but they disguise their motivations in a facade of sober rationalism and pragmatism. So deprived of God, people are seeking another explanatory creed. And this all-explaining creed is liberal leftism. It's the vision of the anointed. Left intellectuals are not just innocently misguided in their views, but they are culpably mistaken in their assessments of their own motivations. They reject traditional religion, but they have left themselves psychologically vulnerable to a whole host of dangerous political seductions at whose behest they would unravel the traditional order. So it is this allure of a secular utopia, a secular eschatology, kind of explains the cultural upheavals of America since the 1960s. So people on the left try through politics to bring their secular vision of the kingdom of God to fruition on earth, but they are now unrestrained by the humility that's inculcated by traditional religious teaching. So we've got this new left-wing religiosity represents a narcissistic indulgence in feelings of personal transcendence. You've got this impossible yearning to extricate oneself once and for all from the shackles of tradition and create a new self and a new being. And this lives on in mainstream liberalism. So that the Supreme Court's announcement in Casey versus Planned Parenthood that the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of the universe and of the mystery of human life. All right, this isn't purely a secular ideal. It is the secularization of what were formerly religious longings to rise above the limitations of ordinary day-to-day -day existence in this world that liberals now frequently seek to fulfill through politics. They're all social roles that aren't concerned with the afterlife or your eternal soul. Yeah, so it's like it's contradictory, is message in many respects, because he otherwise lauds you know, institutions and traditions for the role that they have in, in providing services like therapy, right, like mental health advice in the pre-modern age and so on. But there's three clips to finish with, Matt, and I think they all fall into the part that for me makes this video not just farcical, but to some extent creepy or uh, like, you know, I, I'm not saying that... I've had uh, two J Asian girlfriends and uh, they're both excellent experiences. They a Asian women, I think, in general, tend to be much more open to dating a kind of nerdy guy or an introspective guy or someone who enjoys spending a lot of time alone reading books like myself. So... Uh, Two, two, two brothers that I grew up with from childhood, they, they married Thai sisters. 
And uh, one bloke, his first marriage was to a Caucasian woman. It ended in divorce. Very happily married now to a Thai woman. So a lot of white guys that I grew up with married to Asian women. Uh, a lot of Orthodox Jews I know. I mean, several who've married Asian women after they converted to Orthodox Judaism. So Jews and Asians seem to be a pretty good fit. And you don't get lost when you enter inside an Asian woman, right? You feel big and it feels tight and it feels good, feels amazing. I mean, seriously, more than half of the Caucasian women I've been with are just way too loose down there. I mean, is that just the effect of promiscuity? What is that? This video in itself is is likely to have a huge impact. It's just a really a bombastic conservative message. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that these clips that we'll look at are part of the reason that people are right to be a little bit concerned about Jordan Peterson's potential impact on society and, and vulnerable populations of the internet. And uh, that he is not just delivering a self-help message about stand up straight and tidy your room. And let me show you what I mean. So here's the first of them. So join us. We'll help fix you up, and you can help fix us up. And together, we'll aim up. And here's a message to those young men skeptical about such things. What else do you have? You can abandon the churches in your cynicism and disbelief. You can say to yourself, narcissistically and solipsistically, the church does not express what I believe properly. Who cares what you believe? Why is this about you? Do you even want it to be about you? What if it was about others? What if it was about your duty to the past? and to the broader community that surrounds you in the present. Okay, so yeah. before I editorialize, anything that strikes you as concerning there? Yeah, I find it a little bit dark too, and how to explain why. I think he characterizes it as being narcissistic and solipsistic and selfish to, to have your own opinion about what's true and what's not, that you should just, you know, you've got nothing else, right? Unless you grab on the church, a church, and submit yourself to their doctrine, forget about whether you believe it or not, just put it first, commit yourself to this bigger, cause, then you'll have absolutely nothing. You'll just fall into the kind of nihilism that he, that he, that he hates. It, it, it feels kind of fash. It's just kind yeah. of fascistic to me. Well, there's, I mean, so, you know, you could, that advice could be applied to people to join. Okay. I mean, that's absolutely absurd to say that uh, endorsing traditionalism is fascistic. Right? So this is where decoding the gurus has absolutely, you know, gone off the rails. So come on, guys, get it together. If you're not somebody who has this deep sense of insecurity and that you don't matter and whatnot, then I don't think this kind of message resonates that much with you because you think, well, you know, I have my own opinions. I don't need to be told what to do. But if you're someone that's like, you know, deeply depressed, insecure about your identity or whatever, and somebody tells you, stop obsessing about yourself, stop fixating on your what you want, like who cares? And I've got a solution for you and you can have value, right? You can be a part of this bigger system, which is bigger than you, which will give you a purpose to your life. Like if you take it in a moderate way about stop being so self-obsessive and seek out things that will give you life meaning and instead of wallowing in self-pity, try to do service to others. But there's an other side of it and it's in his delivery or the kind of sources that he's pointing people towards, which is essentially saying there's a solution to Okay, so the the chat is chat is hopping. I think if a white man marries an Asian woman, it's a sign of defeat. It's like he settled because he couldn't find another white. So yeah, I've heard that sentiment often, and it does come with extra problems for the kids because the kids are neither white or Asian, right? Mixed race kids, generally speaking, have a much more difficult path through life. On the other hand, for the white and, and Asian couple, that seems to really work, right? I don't know many examples of whites and Asians who've married each other and it hasn't worked out. 
right? They tend to have lasting, happy marriages. So yeah, the kids who are neither fully Asian or fully white, they face challenges. They don't have the, the same natural community that uh, people coming from a, a regular background do, right? It, it, uh, they, they often have you know, more problems with uh, suicide, with, uh, with drug addiction, with various mental health problems. They also have some advantages, but yeah, I think it's tough for the, for the, the mixed race kids. They, they generally speaking seem to have a more difficult path through life, but just from my empirical observations, uh, Asians and whites marrying each other in most of the examples I know of, it, it overwhelmingly seems to work out. So this uh, back to this terrific book by philosopher Ronnie Goldman on conservative oppression. So liberal ideals, you know, it's really post hoc, meaning after, afterwards, rationalizations for their otherworldly religious passions seeking a thisworldly incarnation. So you can find the true meaning of contemporary liberalism not in the sober musings of John Locke, Immanuel Kant, or John Stuart Mill, but in the perverse will to make secular religious impulses that should not be secularized. So liberalism is ignorant of its own intellectual lineage, right? Liberalism's all about the separation of church and state, but liberalism is the extension of a religious impulse that can no longer be expressed religiously, right? So liberals who want to inject their religious impulse, want to erect an entire political order on the foundation of the do-goodery that was once considered the proper purview of churches. So the environment has become a religious obsession for many on the left. You'll find environmentally themed hotels right, in, in California that have replaced the Bible in all of their rooms with Al Gore's book, An Inconvenient Truth. Right? Anyone with kids understands how the invocations to reduce, reuse, and recycle are now taught like catechisms in schoolrooms across the country. Liberal environmental science is itself the product of a theological perversion. So the Church of Apocalyptic Man-Made Global Warming has a holy scripture that you cannot question. It has high priests whose interpretations are infallible. It has sermons that warn of hellfire, rising oceans, and plagues as punishments for our sins. Environmentalists are obstinate and dogmatic because they have confounded the secular and the profane and the religious. They are using secular concerns to channel religious impulses that they would reject in their original form, but are now recapitulated in their secular idealism. So you'll find residues of Christian theology and political correct education. There's this UC Santa Cruz course that requires students to perform sections of the feminist play, The Vagina Monologues. Right, so... This is the sort of procedure you'd find in religious monasteries during the Middle Ages when students were required to perform morality plays about Christian church doctrine. To your weakness, and it's, it's to submit yourself to the authority of these traditional outlets. And your belief that your individuality matters is just like a cancer given to you by modern culture. Like if you go back, that will lead you to meaning. And yeah, it's just, it's, yeah. I, I have a quote for you that might help, Chris. See if you can spot where this is from. You're not special. You're not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. We're all part of the same compost heap. We're the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. Fight Club. 
Fight Club. It's the same. It's the oh. same kind of. It's the same kind of thing. You know, I was, I'm following George. I was on board with that. <laughs> you know what? I mean, like, it's not. It's not entirely wrong. It's just. It's. It's the same kind of appeal. It's the same kind of message, and it's fine. Yeah, you could dedicate yourself to the Catholic Church. You could dedicate yourself to the fictional Fight Clubs, terrorist, anti-capitalist, liberal thing, or you could dedicate yourself to the Moonies or something. I mean, it's not. It's not good advice, I don't think, and I don't, I don't think it's ever good advice to tell people that don't think for yourself what you think is true or not doesn't matter. Just find find some people that seem to know what they're doing and submit yourself to them. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, there's always the position that you can take the more moderate version, which is like modern, particularly American culture, as we often comment on the podcast, can be like too self-indulgent, too much yeah. individualistic. And there are things to criticize there, but it is the level that he takes it to, and the kind of dramatic delivery and stuff that makes yeah. the creepiness yeah. uh, filter in. Like, like I'm with you. Like I, I liked Fight Club. I was sympathetic to the idea of blowing up the, the big buildings and so on. You know, that, I wasn't sympathetic. <laughs> well, well, more <laughs> the, you know, you know, the anti IKEA consumer is empty kind of thing, and that fetishizing your individuality and so on. Like you can take his thing. I'm, I'm basically agreeing with you. You, you can take you're his an, thing. You're an anti-capitalist hipster. I know. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you could dial what he's saying down to one or point five. Yeah, probably five is fine. Yeah, and you can say that, yeah, it, it is a good idea to, to look to devote yourself to other people. It is a good idea not to ruminate so much and, and think that you're this unique special snowflake whose needs and wants and things should, all, you know, should always take first priority. Like if you dialed it right down to that, you could find a way in which it made sense. But he doesn't. He dials it up to 12. No. And so the next clip, again, in combination with that, here's another message that he offers. What if it was incumbent upon you and vital to your health and willingness even to live to rescue your dead father from the belly of the beast where he has always resided and to restore him to life? Well, what indeed? What if? Have you ever considered doing that, Chris? Rescuing your dead father from the belly of the beast where he's always resided and to restore him to life? So you got that reference, right, Matt? <laughs> with, with, with a little help from you, I eventually got the reference. Do, do, yeah. I, do, do you want to tell the sweet listeners? That's Pinocchio. That's, that's from Pinocchio. And as we know, Jordan is very interested in the Pinocchio story, very emotional about it. So we've had Harry Potter, now we've got Pinocchio. But like for me here, the issue is not the, the pop culture reference because, you know, all, all right, fine. Disney contains important life lessons and, and long enduring archetypes from cultural narratives or whatever but the mm -hmm. um the point is that this framing is now switched to don't you want to be a hero don't you want your life to be you know an adventure and, and valuable so we've gone from the emphasis on you don't matter to you can become this heroic figure who battles wheels to pull your follower up from the depths and yeah so john peterson sounds incredibly strident in these clips of a video that he made for ben shapiro's uh, what daily wire so art bell wants to know what is it that i, I want to watch at 7 p.m because i'm always done by 7 p.m i start to get hungry about 6 30 and like a show less than two hours it just seems to fit with the rest of my life so i don't build my life around my youtube show i do my youtube shows around my life so making videos on youtube is not my number one priority it's not my number two priority like it's probably like number five, number six, number seven. Like it's probably somewhere between number five and, and number 10 priority in my life. So I fit these streams around what works for the rest of my life. Take care. Bye-bye.